The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 8th chapter. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, You will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It seemed fitting to me that on the day when we celebrate the Lutheran Reformation that I should begin with a story from our brothers in the Reformed Church. The story is told of John Calvin, probably an apocryphal story, I might add. But one day while he was teaching, news came to him that some new relics had been added to the local church. Supposedly, they belonged to one of the important theologians of the day. I think, if I recall correctly, it was St. Augustine. A finger bone or something like that, maybe a tooth a small piece of the saint that was brought into this chapel that it might be worshipped by those around them, and thus they might receive remission of their time in purgatory. And in his classic sort of wry humor, Calvin said, I wish that they had spent more time reading him and less time worshipping his bones. Maybe then the church wouldn't be in such a sorry state. And on a day where we celebrate the Reformation, it is bad Lutheran manners, I guess, to congratulate John Calvin, but I must say, well said, Dr. Calvin. He got to the very heart of what was wrong in the people of that day, their worship of the saints, this whole cult of worship that surrounded these mere mortals. Luther echoed the exact same criticisms in Germany. People were spending so much time devoted to the bones of dead men, devoted to pieces of art and relics and other things that captured their imagination but had no power of godliness about them. The chief and most pressing danger, of course, which the reformers pointed out, was that in so doing, they were in fact moving Christ away from his proper place in the heart of a Christian. They were supplanting faith in the all-atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ with their own works. The work of worshiping the bones of dead men. The work of calling upon mere mortals for aid in their times of need. That was, of course, the greatest of their theological failures. But there was another problem that Luther and the reformers so aptly noted. There was a very human problem associated with this worship of the saints, and that was that it took 
the saints away from what their proper glory truly was. It made us more inclined to look at their bones and look at the stories of their miraculous deeds, but spend less time reading what they said, less time taking to heart their great confessions of Christ, less time appreciating them, not as superheroes or demigods of the faith, but rather recognizing them as sinful men and women, mortal flesh and blood, just as we are. The great danger of the cult of the saints was that it turned these ordinary Christians into mythological figures. Figures that, frankly, we could never relate to. Figures of all-surpassing virtue and greatness, quite unlike us sinful men and women, we who struggle with the burden of our sin and our tormented consciences, we who do not have the strength to do the glorious works which they did. When we transform these people into superheroes, we take away the great comfort of the gospel that their lives manifest for us. The fact that they indeed were just as weak as we are. They were just as beset by sins as we today are. They were just as reliant upon God's grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his mighty power to deliver them from all of the torments of their consciences and from the assaults of the devil, the world, and their own sinful nature. They were just as reliant on these things as we were. And the second great danger of what they observed in those days, according to the Reformers, was that we should lose sight of what it truly means to be a saint of God. And it was for this reason that they set their pens to the, frankly, supremely daunting task of reforming the church. There is perhaps a reason why Luther chose all Saints' Eve as the day when he should first make his problem with the system of things known. It is because in the minds of the many people they were not saints, not holy, not people worthy of God's grace, and the church of the day was all too willing to reinforce that belief and to point them to entirely the wrong places. Therefore, Martin Luther Philip Melanchthon, all the great heroes of the Reformation whom we celebrate on this day, were willing to put their pens to paper, willing to put their hand to their heart and pledge in the sight of kings and princes and church authorities, indeed in the sight of the whole world, and to say, something is wrong here. Something must change. The church must hear the words of the gospel and repent of where we have gone wrong. The church must put aside these superstitious and unfruitful works of darkness that we have convinced ourselves are true piety, and we must instead rededicate our hearts to first matters, to the promise of grace and forgiveness in Christ Jesus, which has animated the saints of the past and which today must be the sole animating power in our work. 
We must not give in to complacency. We must not simply go on doing what we have always done because it is the thing that is comfortable and gladsome to us. No, the church must be reformed. Reformed not by man, not by Martin Luther or Philip Melanchthon or Frederick the Great or Philip of Hesse or any of these other heroes. Rather, the church must be reformed by the grace of God, by the word of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit who first created the church in Christ for good works. No, the Reformation is not the work of man. It is the work of God. But in fact, I dare say that for us Lutherans today, we need to be reminded of what the church in those days needed to be reminded of. For indeed, we always fall into the same temptations. The medieval church was not filled up with people who were manifestly different than us. No, they were sinful people just as we are today, and we are prone to the same problem of hero worship. I see so many people wearing red today, and I'm glad to see that the Reformation is in your heart so. We trot out the red and we put it on our altars in celebration of this day, but we are not mindful of what that color is to signify to us. The power of the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, but secondly, of the blood of the martyrs. If there are any words that we should dwell on today from the scriptures, it, are, it is those words from Psalm 119, which we sang earlier. I will speak of your testimony before kings, O Lord, and I will not be put to shame. Martin Luther and the crowd were willing to go before the people of the day, go before the kings and magistrates of their land, willing to suffer all, even the sentence of death, for the sake of the gospel. And we laud and magnify their works, but are we willing to walk in their footsteps? The choice is rapidly being made for us, I'm afraid. Already you have heard in our day that there are Christians who are being dragged before court and made to answer for their confession. People who are being dragged before court because of their insistence that God made man and woman and nothing else. Their insistence that marriage is a creation of God and therefore not to be bent to the whims of man and to their own sexual perversions. Dragged before courts and made to answer for their confession that all life is a creation of God's own hand and therefore it is not to be destroyed according to man's violent nature. They are being made to ask for these. And frankly, these are the easy questions that come before Christians these days. The more difficult questions are sure to follow. Indeed, they may not have been asked of us by the courts yet, but they will be asked for us by our family and our friends and our neighbors. How can you dare to tell another person how he ought to live? How dare you tell another person that his religion and the dictates of his conscience are wrong? How dare you say that all must bend the knee to Christ and recognize him as God and Lord, or else they shall be lost to the fires of hell? 
Doubtless you have heard these questions. And the days are coming when the church can no longer afford to simply close ourselves up behind four walls filled with people who already agree with us on these matters and simply hide from the greater questions of the world. No, the days are coming as they were in the days of Luther and in the days of the apostles and in the days of many of the saints whom we adore throughout the generations when we too shall be summoned to the places of the highest powers of this world and made to answer. And how shall we answer when that time comes upon us? Yes, I love Reformation Day. I love to live in the glory of Martin Luther and in those people who stood defiantly before the world for the sake of their faith. But frankly, I have to ask myself if I would have the same stomach for such an occasion. And I know that I, first amongst many, must be the one to do so. It is the burden of the pastor's stole around my neck, after all, that I should be the first lamb led to slaughter for the sake of Christ's flock. And yet the more I read of Luther, the more I read of those who followed in his footsteps, the more convinced I am of my own unworthiness. And the more I wonder, how could they do it? Were they really supermen, heroes of the faith, demigods of God's grace? No, of course not. In fact, the more you read of Martin Luther, the more you read of the heroes of the Reformation, the more you find that they were just men. Luther was angry and cantankerous. He frequently stuck his own foot in his mouth and did more harm to his work than he ever intended. Philip Melanchthon, that great erudite scholar, often had a spine like a wet noodle and was unwilling to stand for the things that truly matter. Frederick the Great, a conniving politician. Philip of Hesse, stalwart as he was, an adulterer and a bigamist, a sinful man like so many others. All of them sinful men, all of them wretched bags of worms and filth, all of them nothing but beggars. So how could they do it? How could they muster the courage? And indeed, how can we muster that courage? The only way for them, for us, for the saints of past and future, the only way that we can do such a thing is to be firmly reliant upon the words of Christ, to know that the Son has set us free. That was what gave them the power to go before the emperor, before the bishops of the pope, go before men who had swords around their belt and the capacity to end their lives if they so desired. It was because they had first already in their hearts gone before the king of all creation. He who kills not just body, but he who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. They had gone before this king and judge in all their sinfulness. And yet there had heard the wondrous grace of Christ revealed to them.
There, standing before the most terrifying king in all of heaven and earth, they heard the voice of Christ pleading for their forgiveness. They heard the sentence from on high that was handed down, that though they were indeed worthy of death and hell and of all of the burdens and punishments that their sins had brought upon them, that yet for the sake of Christ they should be free from these. Not just free from their sin, but rather glorified in their forgiveness. That though they were worthy of the prison and torment of hell, instead they had received a kingdom of God's own making, a city whose foundations were laid by God and his word. Not the torments of their own anguish, but the uplifting consolation of the Holy Spirit who deigned to make their bodies his temple and to promise therein the resurrection of their flesh that even if they should be put to death by kings and magistrates, that still the king of life had gifts aplenty for them. And though they should lie in dust and ashes for a time, yet by the power of Christ who had forgiven them of their sins, they should be raised up from the tomb, that their hands clasped and clenched in death should one day know the warm embrace of their savior as he pulled them out of their graves. The knowledge that, though their sins were aplenty, by God's love they were forgiven. It was this, and only this, that so compelled these wretched sinners to stand in the face of kings and bishops and a world of people who cared not for the gospel of Christ. And indeed, that shall be the only thing that gives us strength in these gray and latter days. It is not the story of their heroism that we should reflect upon today, but rather it is the precious gift of the gospel which they reintroduced to a church so desperately in need that should give our hearts cause to soar this morning, and indeed every morning. The knowledge that you are here today, not because Martin Luther was a great man, or Philip Melanchthon a great theologian, or Frederick the Great a wise politician, or Philip of Hesse a stalwart figure in the past of the church. No, forget these men. You are here today because the Father has loved you because the Father gave his Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you, and Jesus sent his Spirit to bestow upon you the gift of faith, whereby you should lay claim to everything that he has won for you. You are here today not because of the will of man, but because of the will of God. You are here today not because of the greatness of men, but because of the greatness of God's grace, which has forgiven you all of your sins, and brought you into his kingdom. You are here today because in an hour of deepest need, God set about the work of reforming his church. And by his grace, he has continued to do so down through the generations to this very day. By his grace, he has preserved the gospel of the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus through faith alone. And this faith in your heart has led you to be here this day at his own altar, wherein the fruits of his son's sacrifice are so richly poured out for you, 
where the very body and blood of his Son is given for you as food and drink for body and soul. Indeed, today, God's grace is fully revealed to you, manifestly put before your eyes that your faith may be strengthened, that your courage may be confirmed, and that your life may be secured, so that you with all boldness may go forth to proclaim the testimonies of the Lord, if not before the eyes of kings, then at least to the ears of your family, the ears of children and grandchildren, fathers and brothers and mothers and sisters, your neighbors, the people whom you work with, whoever God has placed into your life, you may go before them with the testimonies of the Lord richly in your heart, knowing that you shall partake forever of the grace of God which was shown to you in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this, and only this, will give us the courage to meet the days that are ahead. Just as indeed it was this, and only this, which gave all of the saints of the past their power to do the mighty works that God had called them to. For indeed, no saint lives by himself, but all have been called by the grace of God, all have been given his gifts, and by the power of his Spirit at work in them, he gave them the courage to do the works that he had called them to. That has not changed in the generations, and it shall not change going forth. Even if the day should come when we are all hauled before kings and men of power to give an account, there we may be confident that the Spirit shall still reside in us, and that when at last the time has come to choose between the easy comforts of this life or the bloody death of martyrdom, we can be sure that in that moment, though our knees quake, though our hearts turn within us, though we are not certain of our own strength, yet the Spirit shall give utterance to the faith that is in us. And we shall overcome and take they our life, goods, fame, child, or wife, the kingdom ours remaineth, and we shall abide in this kingdom forever with all of the heroes of the faith who have gone before us. Yes, with Luther and Melanchthon and Frederick and Philip and maybe even John Calvin. But all who have called upon Christ, all who have trusted in him, all who have known his grace, they shall be there, there in the house of his father, not as slaves, but as sons, as those mercifully redeemed by the blood of the only Son who so loved us that he was willing to die for us, and so that today we may be comforted and we may be strengthened. So, by all means, keep wearing the red. Keep remembering these great men of faith and the work that they did. Indeed, pay mind to all the saints of the past of the church and to the great works that they did. Read what they said. Give thanks to God for the great works that were done by them. And remember that the same Christ at work in them is at work in you. 
until at last the day when you shall stand in that kingdom which is prepared for you, in your body and your soul redeemed from the dust of the earth and from all sin. And forever we shall praise him, praise him for the eternal gospel which he has proclaimed to all the ends of the earth, and which we have been privileged today to know in his mercy and his love forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. In the name of Jesus, our only hope in this life and the next. Amen. <laughs>